0: 10 or 12 years ago, and they've converted it from row crops into perennial pastures. That was the first big project and got all that established, got a beef herd going. And within the last five or six years, my dad has gotten a little bit obsessed with oak savanna restoration. And there's a you can tell on the farm that there's some big old bur oak trees that must have grown up in the days when the landscape was pretty open. And it was a savanna managed by fire grazing. And then we took those things away as far as land management tools, and it all grew up into trees. And so now we're working on opening it all back up. And that's going to bring back a ton of plant diversity, native plants that are adapted to that fire regime in a savanna, animal diversity, insect life, everything that comes along with a native ecosystem. The best that we can do at approximating a native ecosystem
1: are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs hello
2: this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast i have mitch hunter he's the associate director for the forever green initiative He's an adjunct assistant professor. This is all at University of Minnesota. And we're going to talk about plant diversity, and sustainability, and as mention mentioned, something called the beef farm. So, Mitch, <laughs> thanks for coming. And uh, you know, we'll talk about whatever subject is of most interest to you. Sure. Well, thanks for having me,
0: Richard. I appreciate the opportunity.
2: Yeah, no problem. I guess since it sounds unusual and intriguing, what is the beef farm? First of all, and then we can move on to other stuff.
0: <laughs> I think that's referring to my parents' beef farm. So my parents raise organic grass-fed beef on about 120 acres of pasture and 30 some acres of in process oak savanna restoration. And that's in Southeast Minnesota. So it's a farm that's been some land that's been farmed for over a hundred years, not by us. We, my parents bought it about 10 or 12 years ago, and they've converted it from row crops into perennial pastures. That was the first big project and got all that established, got a beef herd going. And within the last five or six years, my dad has gotten a little bit obsessed with oak savannah restoration. And there's a, you can tell on the farm that there's some Big old bur oak trees that must have grown up in the days when the landscape was pretty open and it was a savanna managed by fire grazing and then we took those things away as far as land management tools and it all grew up into trees and so now we're working on opening it all back up and that's going to bring back a ton of plant diversity, native plants that are adapted to that fire regime in a savanna animal diversity, insect life, everything that comes along with a native ecosystem, the best that we can do at approximating a native ecosystem. Pretty excited about that. It's not, it's not my day job, unfortunately, but it's a really awesome thing to get to be a part of a little bit here and there when I go home for holidays and that sort of thing. So you don't have any beef with your parents? To make a bad joke. Oh, <laughs> no, but I have a lot of my parents' beef in a freezer in my basement. So it's a major plus for, for me and my family. Excellent.
2: Well, tell me about the the research that you're doing on uh, diversity.
0: Yeah. So I am associate director of something called the Forever Green Initiative. We are a super unique program at the University of Minnesota. Really nothing like Forever Green anywhere else, any other university. We are super interdisciplinary, bring in people with a lot of different areas of expertise. And we are all solely focused together on developing comprehensive crops and cropping systems and even supply chains for novel crops the whole goal is to get new crops on the landscape with a specific focus of keeping our soils covered all year round so again based in minnesota it gets cold up here and with the few exceptions of let's say alfalfa and some pasture and a little bit of of a few winter crops for the most part We've got millions and millions and millions of acres of our soil that is bare all winter long. So after we harvest our summer crops in the fall, all the way through spring, early summer, that those soils are bare. That makes them vulnerable. That means that you can have erosion. The nutrients in those soil, the fertilizer nutrients can wash out into the waters, creating algal blooms, creating drinking water problems. And it's a huge missed opportunity because that soil could, if, if you had a living plant on it, uh, it would be alive, full of um, diverse microorganisms and plant root, drawing carbon out of the air, putting it back into the soil, improving the soil health and growing food products that we can eat or feed to livestock or make things out of. And so we're working on that problem. We are trying to diversify our agricultural landscape with new crops that can keep the soil covered all year round. We want to have continuous living cover on the soil, and we see that as a huge opportunity to improve the environment, to create new economic opportunities for farmers, and also for businesses, especially across rural Minnesota, taking these new crops and products and making some value-added products out of it, bringing jobs back to rural communities, And so it is about plant diversity, absolutely. It's just plant diversity with a really strategic target, um, addressing one of the major natural resource vulnerabilities that we have in this part of the country and really across much of the world in mid to higher latitudes.
2: Um, Okay, so
0: you're talking about cover crops. Uh,
2: What are some cover crops that you can use and why don't people use them? Why doesn't everyone use them?
0: That is the crux of the question. Um, We're talking about cover crops. We're we're putting a new spin on it where we are developing, for the most part, cover crops that you can, um, not just grow and turn back into the soil or, or, you know, kill with a herbicide, but actually harvest and sell something off of them. So the answer to your question of why more farmers aren't using them is, is multifaceted. Um, cover crops have been around forever, essentially in agriculture. And we've really gotten away from them in the last 50 to 75 years because we've had chemicals that can, do a lot of the same functions that can provide fertility that can suppress weeds. And it, it seemed simpler, easier, more modern, more efficient to farm without all these other plants on the fields and, and just really focus on the cash crops. And now more and more farmers are seeing that there's a, another way to do it and are on their own very entrepreneurially and in an in innovative way, bringing cover crops into their operations, fi- figuring out how to make it work financially, economically, Ecologically and improving their soils in a way that's going to give them fertility and productivity they want for you know generations down the line, and that's that's. Right, but awesome. right, but
2: what, what does that mean? What what do cover crops do, and what's the trade offs involved in putting them in there?
0: Yeah, so cover crops basically one way to define it is a crop that you grow when the soil would otherwise be bare. So in again, in this part of the world, that's usually the winter. So you can plant uh, the the kind of straightforward approach is you plant something like cereal rye, annual grass, very winter hardy, or maybe a clover um, that would be fixing nitrogen out of the air, and you can kind of grow your own nitrogen fertilizer. And then usually the next spring, a farmer would terminate that one or the other, and and go ahead and plant the next crop. And so the trade offs are you keep your soil covered, you protect it, you can build soil carbon, build soil health, have have better nutrient availability but there's there's major challenges. Um, it costs money to plant a cover crop. You're buying the seed, you're powering your tractor to go back and forth across the field. It takes time and logistics and can introduce some new variables. So if springtime comes and you're ready to terminate the cover crop, but you just had three inches of rain, well, you might not be able to get out in your fields and do that termination. And so now you have to adapt the rest of your system. So it's a real challenge. There's a, There's a reason that not every farmer in America is out there growing cover crops and so what we're trying to do with the forever green initiative is to give farmers more reasons to do that and we think if we can make these winter cover type crops and novel perennial crops profitable many more farmers will be interested in giving it a try and will stick with it over time they'll see a lot of those same benefits for their soils and their production systems but also you know a direct benefit to their bottom line which is critical as well okay
2: before we continue the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests and more visit finding and click support us today. Now back to the show. What kind of cover crops are good for which crops or which climates? And again, how, how does this work and what would be the benefits of doing this and how?
0: Yeah. Um, so it, Depends a bit on, um, you know, whatever crop is coming next. So there's a lot of factors, but I think the biggest one that often drives how people select cover crops is, you know, which crop is going to be grown next. So if you're going into something like corn or wheat, um, a grass crop, or really anything except a legume, just as a reminder for folks, legumes are a family of plants that have a kind of magical ability to fix nitrogen. And it's because they have a certain strain of microorganism of bacteria that lives in their roots and so they build this cool synergistic relationship with these bacteria and they feed those bacteria with extra energy bacteria take nitrogen out of the air where it's not available to plants and they transform it and so directly in the plant root those plants are being fertilized and and that's credible asset that we need to use much more effectively in agriculture so one way to use it is to grow an actual legume as your cash crop beans, peas, soybeans. We we grow a lot of legumes as cash crops, and so they can make all the nitrogen that they need. But not every crop is a legume. And so when you're thinking about a, a cover crop that you're going to rotate with your cash crops, a great strategy if you can make it work is to grow a really large legume cover crop right before your corn or your wheat which you know those are crops that need a lot of nitrogen you know in your backyard garden it might be your tomatoes that need a lot of nitrogen so if you grow legume cover crop before any of those crops and you terminate it turn it into the soil or just leave it lay on top of the soil that nitrogen is going to make its way into the soil and be available for that next crop so again you can grow your own fertilizer and that is a big selling point for cover crops there's lots of other things you can think about if you've got a particularly bad weed problem cereal rye can be a great, great thing to incorporate. It's super aggressive and is likely to outcompete whatever weeds you might have if you get it established well. So there's a a whole wide range of different considerations that a farmer or a gardener might think about when deciding to plant cover crops. But you you can be targeted, you can be prescriptive. And you know, I want a certain function, I want a certain outcome. And so I'm going to pick a certain species. And I think that's a very powerful way to approach it.
2: Yeah, but I mean, do you have to tend to the cover crops, you know, you're not trying to get yield out of them. So is it that hard? I mean, you, you plant them and you just kind of let them grow as they grow, water them a bit, but not do much for them. And then you, you know, you till them into the soil for the, for the real crop you want to grow. And then you're paying all kinds of attention and you know, babysitting the crop to make sure you have maximum yield.
0: You're about right. I mean, cover crops in the typical sense are pretty low maintenance. You do have to get them planted. Uh, you shouldn't, you know, no, one shouldn't discount how hard that can be, especially if you're farming on a larger scale to, to cover hundreds of acres, planting, uh, putting the seed down for a cover crop in the fall after you've Or you, when you're in the middle of harvesting your other crops, I mean, that's a, that's crunch time. You see a lot of farmers out, you know, deep into the night with, with headlights on during harvest season. So it's, it is a commitment. It is a bit of a challenge, but you're right. Once it's in the ground, usually you can kind of forget about it until the next spring when you go in to terminate. And that's again for the traditional model of cover crops at the forever green initiative. We're kind of trying to turn that model on its head and think about your winter crops as cash crops. So again, keep the soil covered, potentially feed it with some of the leguminous crops we're working with, and certainly build soil carbon, build a lot of those soil health benefits, but then have something to harvest. And if you're going to treat your cover crops that way, you do need to treat them like a crop, basically. It's a a winter crop, it's a rotational crop. And what we're doing is, is taking species that have been forgotten, or even in some cases, wild species and domesticating them so that farmers have a more functional, better toolbox of these winter crops and perennial crops than they've ever had before. Um, so that it's not, it's not a sacrifice. It can be profitable. It can fit with the rest of your rotation. And yeah, you, it does, it is going to require management, but you know, that's what farmers do every day. So they're up for it. I think, um, especially if there's, a good return on investment at the end of the day and they see their soils improving at the same time
2: well I mean people grow peas and legumes for for harvest I mean what what could be learned from people that actively grow these things even there's some people that like one man's trash is another man's you know treasure or one man's cover crop is another man's main crop
0: absolutely no I think you're you're exactly right we need to blow up those categories a little bit and certainly learn from the growers have who've been producing these crops for a long time, you know, something that's been lacking in the toolbox, especially for for here in Minnesota and surrounding states is species that are winter hardy enough. So one of our big breakthroughs recently is to develop a winter barley line that's hardy enough for Minnesota. There's winter barleys out there, but none of them have been really viable up here. So that's a really concrete example of how our plant breeders have applied their expertise, their knowledge to find the find the genetic resources out there and develop a winter barley that can be grown in Minnesota. And we're trying to replicate that with winter peat. I think that could be credible advance for us and for the agricultural industry because it's a legume, because you can grow it as a cash crop for the peas. And at the same time it's going to be building some some nitrogen in the soil. So we're absolutely looking to models that are out there and growers that have been succeeding um, and just trying to translate that. And you know, Anywhere you go in the, in, the, in the country or the world, agriculture is different. It's always locally adapted. Even a corn grower in northern Minnesota and a corn grower in southern Iowa do things differently. And so we need to put options on the table, put tools out there that are going to work in our systems, in the diversity of our systems, and that are really targeted to the gaps in those systems. And that's what we're working to do uh, with plant breeding, with basic genomics and agronomics, all the way through food science and supply chain development which is what it takes to get these crops out on the landscape.
1: What happens
2: during the winter though? I mean, can anything survive in Minnesota? What happens to the ground?
0: (laughs) Um, It can, it's really pretty impressive. Some of our, Plants, as long as they germinate in the fall, get out of the ground and have one or two leaves on them, they can survive. They're just incredibly winter hardy. Now, they're not actually growing. They're in a dormant state when they're covered in snow or or frozen. But it doesn't take long when the air temperature and the soil start to warm up in the spring. It doesn't take long to see those leaves turn green again and new leaves come out. And that that time frame, that very early spring time frame is a perfect illustration of why this matters. You go out there in April and the rest of the landscape is bare dirt. Maybe there's some, maybe for folks who are practicing no-till, there's some crop residue on the surface and that's great, but there's nothing growing. And in our fields, our, our crops are greening up. They're working on covering the soil. They're using the sunlight that's coming in. They are Those The the roots are taking up nitrogen and keeping it from washing away. And that early spring and the fall are some of the most vulnerable times in the year for loss of nutrients to waterways. So our crops target that. They're, They're on the landscape, they're growing and really providing a service when it's needed most of protecting the soil and taking up nutrients.
2: What do you do if it's negative 40 degrees outside and everything's like frozen to death? You know, yeah, there's a cover crop, but it's you know, it's it's combined, I guess, with like rock hard frozen soil, mixed in with, you know, maybe ice. Like, what, what do you do?
0: Well, that's the time of the year when farmers, at least crop farmers, really can take it easy. It's you you trust if you have varieties that you know are winter hardy, you trust that those plants are dormant and will spring right back. Um, you know, the soil's not vulnerable when it's frozen. So that's a good thing. Frozen, frozen soil doesn't wash away. And nutrients don't leach through because the water's not moving through it. Um, so it's it's okay in these systems for to have frozen soil as long as when it when it starts to thaw out, you have plants there who can protect it, take up the nutrients, and start growing, pulling carbon out of the air and building some kind of yield that is useful for society and that farmers can sell. So that's the whole model we're working on.
2: So does it matter if you have, you know, the legumes that are frozen onto the soil with the soil? They get, should they be planted as early as possible so that when the real freezes come that they're there, but again, frozen in place? Or like, what do you do when um, when you know you're going to have this uh, incredibly cold state where nothing will be living or doing anything?
0: Yeah, um, well, there is a benefit to to planting early where possible. And that's one of the challenges with cover cropping in general, especially in much of our farming regions, we were dominated by summer annuals. Corn, soybeans are the classic examples, but others as well, sugar beets and wheat in some places where they really use up the whole growing season. And so it's challenging to get in there and get something planted in the fall with enough time for it to grow and put on some size and, you know, many plants do better getting through the winter if they have a little bit of size, that just gives them extra reserves to draw on. So, so that's a challenge. Um, so if you can, if you have a rotation that leaves that window open, that's kind of the best case scenario. You can maybe plant your, let's say winter peas in late August, early September in this part of the country, you'll get plenty of growing season for them to establish put on some leaves, start to cover the soil, and be ready to, to jump up the next spring. They wouldn't get in until mid-October, you know, late October. It's just probably not enough time for that to happen. So the timing challenges are real. Um, we've got to get an opportunity to get these crops established. And that's why we look at things as a system. So it's not just about one or two crops that are a magic bullet, and they and they do everything on their own. It's really about designing whole cropping systems and rotations that fit together and that create those windows. So for instance, one of our species um, that we work with is called camelina. And so we have a winter camelina. It's similar to canola. It makes a small seed that's packed full of vegetable oil. So you grow it and harvest the seed and then you can crush it for vegetable oil. Very, very desirable. There's kind of a global shortage of vegetable oil right now. There's so much demand. And so we're developing that crop to be grown over the winter. It's super winter hardy. But we have to think about how it fits into the whole system. And if you just wait for camelina to be mature and then go plant something after it in early July, that's a little bit tricky to grow much of anything of value starting in early July. You're just too late. Um, So what we've done is develop a system where we can relay crop. We actually plant the next crop of soybeans before the camelina is harvested. So the two crops are growing in the field together at the same time. And we've figured out systems where you can come in and harvest the camelina above the soybeans. You take, you take that off the field. The soybeans now are free to grow. They're already established and they can yield almost as much as a regular soybean that doesn't have this, this companion crop in the beginning. So that's, how we're, that's just one example of how we're thinking about the whole system and how it fits together. And I think that's going to be a key to success.
2: Does anyone grow these cover type crops year round? I guess there are big farmers of like peas and, and mm-hmm. other cover crops right that grow them all year round or are they only grown really in the you know in the off season to help main crops that would be there then in the main growing season
0: right well, you're kind of getting to the philosophical question that my colleagues and I debate all too often, which is what is a cover crop because you know like peas. You're absolutely right. There's farmers growing peas all summer long. It's their cash crop. That's what they build their business on. And for them, it's not a cover crop. It's their, it's their cash crop. And usually they're, you know, producing that in a place with favorable climate, favorable soils, that sort of thing. Whereas lots of other farmers might grow the same species of pea and only use it as a cover crop because for them, you know, it's a it's a great way to build up some nitrogen for the silage corn that they plant afterwards. So there's really no one, you can't take any one species and say, well, this is a cover crop species and that is a cash crop species. I mean, you could use corn as a cover crop in certain situations if you wanted to. You can use soybean as a cover crop. I've seen that done. So it's really a matter of, of how you're using it. That is how people typically think of it. And, you know, the long and short of it is that we have, 90 million acres of corn or soy or so 80 million or 90 million acres of soybeans so about 90 million acres of both in this country that's a huge amount of acreage um, those are the two biggest below that um it starts to drop off pretty quick but still tens of millions of acres of wheats And many cases those are grown in a way that leaves the soil bare in the winter so that's really the situation where you, you need to have a cover crop of some kind or else you have something growing on the fields for four to five months out of the year and the rest of the year they are bare and that's just a major liability a major risk um something that we can improve on in a way that helps farmers that helps the environment that even puts more product on the market to address some of those shortages i mentioned and so you know cover crop or not you know what what species it is 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 kind of beside the point. The point in my mind is to come up with new systems that keep that soil covered all year round. And so we're doing exactly that. We're working on species that you can plant after corn. It's not always easy, but something we're working on, you can put something in right between corn and soybeans or after wheat and before corn and always have something green and living growing on the soil because it's so critical to protect that soil. I mean, the soil unfortunately, is washing away faster than nature is rebuilding it. And I don't know when, some people say 60 years or less, when it's it's all going to be gone. I think that's maybe a little bit alarmist, but it's going away. And that soil is the foundation of our civilization. We all have to eat one way or the other, and it all comes from the soil pretty much. So we need to be a lot more proactive. We need to be thinking deep into the future as we think about how we manage our soils today and a critical piece of that is keeping soil covered all year round. Now, if a farmer can figure out how to do that with a cover crop that they terminate and that works with their system, that's awesome. And I think there's a there's a place for some for-profit cover crops, some cover crops that you get to harvest for the farmers who need that in their system in order to take this leap and move to continuous living cover. So that's what we're working towards with annuals and with a variety of Pretty pretty awesome, pretty compelling new perennials. So we've got a perennial cousin of wheat. We're working on a couple of different approaches to a perennial sunflower. We've got perennial flax that's already being evaluated to be commercialized. And so that's that right there is a is a total marriage of a crop cash crop and a cover crop. It does both, and it does it for multiple years in a row with no tilling required, no replanting. So there's real potential here to have a pretty dramatic impact on the structure of our agricultural system and huge benefits for our society, for the environment, and and not doing it in a way where we're at all blaming farmers or or putting a whole new burden on them. It's creating new opportunities for farmers. Um, And we take that very seriously and we want to make sure we're putting out crops that really work for farmers. So That's our goal. And it's, it is in a way to ultimately marry the concept of cash crop and cover crop. So you get the benefits of both. Can you, are there
2: any cover crops you could plant amidst the regular crops? You know, it may impact yield a bit, but maybe it'll offset the amount of fertilizer needed and it'll act as a cover crop and maybe a weed diminisher Mm -hmm. or a weed. uh, I don't know what you call it. Keep them in
0: abeyance while the regular crop's growing. Absolutely. Yeah, we we do have one species we're working on that does exactly that. It's called Cura Clover and it's very hardy perennial, so what we do is get it established between rows of corn. Again, it it's a clover, it's a legume, so it's producing nitrogen. A lot of that nitrogen is going to eventually become available to the corn, so you're really minimizing Nitrogen demand from the corn, and that's a major expense of growing corn, and also a major environmental challenge. And then you just suppress it in the spring. You suppress the clover in the spring with kind of a light application of herbicide. Go in and plant your corn. That gives the corn a chance to jump up and start to outcompete the clover. Clover lies dormant on the field, or or kind of grows slowly during the period of the year when the corn is very tall and is very totally shading the ground. Um, not much can grow there at that time of year but this cure clover is resilient to that it can it can live through that period and in, then in the fall when you come back and harvest the corn the clover's already established and ready to take up nutrients in the fall capture sunlight keep the soil covered and survive the winter and do it all again the next year so very promising system um you know some kinks left to be worked out of that but but yeah it's absolutely one of the one of the approaches that we're exploring
2: Very cool. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work, Mitch? Where can they go?
0: Yeah. So you can go to our website. It is forevergreen.umn.edu or just Google Forever Green Initiative. Should come right up. And we have information there about all of the 15 plus different crops that we're working on, kind of the overall vision. You can get in touch with us. You can, you know, especially if you're working in the food industry, connect with us in terms of accessing products. Um, if you're a scientist and want to collaborate, we're always looking for new collaborators. So, yeah, r- recommend going to our website, forevergreen.umn.edu, and getting in touch. Very good. And it's, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.